Welcome to the Eyes Wide Open Life Podcast. I'm Rocco. In this episode, I'm joined in conversation with Sarah Alkeldi, who runs an account on Instagram called The Alchemist. You can find Sarah on Instagram at, at the.alchemist. This is where I first encountered Sarah's work. I consider Sarah to be one of about three or four people on the planet that I am personally aware of that have this unique and sincere blend of true understanding, with a capital U, authenticity, emotional intelligence, and a mature and total lack of confusion about their own intentions. These happen to be the essential prerequisites that I have for identifying true teachers. Sarah is a mystic spiritual teacher and spoken word performing artist, and she's widely known as a leader in the field of spirituality and esoteric arts. She has a YouTube channel called The Alchemist, and she puts out videos almost on a weekly basis. And I find them one of the rare and rich sources of sanity, context, and understanding that you will find anywhere on the internet. Sarah is also the first lady I've had on the podcast, and she's described herself to me in private conversation as PR for spirit. <clears throat> and she's exceptional at what she does in this capacity. <clears throat> How I notice, Sarah, is when you go through an awakening where your journey is one of chosen trials in the service of real understanding, again, understanding with a capital U, you get an eye or an ear for that understanding. And more than just recognizing wherever you encounter it, it grabs the attention. When I read the following quote from Sarah, I realized clearly and immediately something of the unique measure of the person who wrote it. And this is the quote. Love will save us all. And love will not be gentle. Sarah Alkeldi. I've said so many times on this podcast that our words and our language define the, the depth and the richness of the world we inhabit. I quote Wittgenstein on this fact as a sort of framing premise to so much of the work that I do and I try and share. Wittgenstein said, the limits of my language become the limits of my world. I first encountered the poetic phrasing of this as, we cannot visit worlds for which we do not have the language. This is exactly why I use poetry and continue to develop and share such a specific use of, of language and words in my work. There's a quote by a guy called Marshall McLuhan, which I love. It goes, we don't know who discovered water first, but we know it was not the fish. Just like fish, for most of our lives we accept the world around us from the paradigm that gets educated into us. From childhood, Western society <clears throat> gives us a story that we tell ourselves and we sort of buy into about what the world is, what it means to be alive. What we rarely ask questions <clears throat> about, which is the water we're swimming in. If we cannot notice the water we swim in, how can we ever happen to notice the currents that move us or the fact that we're moved at all? Now, there's a <clears throat> gentleman called Don Miguel Ruiz 
who shared the same idea in the opening of his now famous work, The Four Agreements. The section is called The Domestication of Humans. Now I'm going to read bits of this. So they're extracted excerpt from the opening piece of Domestication of Humans. The dream of the planet includes all of society's rules, its beliefs, its laws, its religions, its different cultures and ways to be, its governments, schools, social events and holidays. We are born with a capacity to learn how to dream. And the humans who lived before us teach us how to dream the way society dreams. The outside dream has so many rules that when a new human is born, we hook the child's attention and introduce these rules into his or her mind. The outside dream uses mom and dad, uses the schools and religion to teach us how to dream. We learned how to behave in society, what to believe, what not to believe, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, what is good, what is bad, what is beautiful, ugly, right, wrong. It was all there already handed to us, all that knowledge, all those rules and the concepts about how to behave in this world. When you were at school, you sat in a little chair and put your attention on what the teacher was teaching you. When you went to church, you put your attention on what the priest or the minister was saying. It's the same dynamic with mom and dad, brothers and sisters. They're all trying to hook your attention. We also learn to hook the attention of other human beings and we develop a need for attention, which can become very competitive. To the outside, sorry, the outside dream hooks our attention and teaches us what to believe, beginning with the language that we speak. Language is the code for understanding and communication between humans. It was not your choice to speak English. You didn't choose your religion or your moral values or your scientific sensibilities. They were already there before you were born. We never had the opportunity to choose what to believe or what not to believe. We never chose even the smallest of these details. We didn't even choose our own name. As children, we don't have the opportunity to choose our beliefs, but we agreed with the information that was passed to us. From the dream of the planet and the dream of other humans. The only way to store information is by agreement. <clears throat> the outside dream may hook our attention, but if we don't agree, we don't store that information. As soon as we agree, we believe it. And that is called faith. And to have faith is to believe unconditionally. And that is how we learn as children. Children believe everything adults say. We agree with them, and our faith is so strong that the belief system controls our whole dream of life. We didn't choose those beliefs. And we may have rebelled against them, but we were not strong enough to win the rebellion. So that's a bit of a <clears throat> paraphrased, um, half-read, half-paraphrased quote of Don Miguel Ruiz's opening piece in the Four Agreements called The Domestication of Humans. Now, the reason I bring that up <clears throat> is because the conversation with Sarah makes use of language and it shares ideas which might be new to you or you have comfortably already categorized as unscientific or fantastical. Now, I have empathy for that concern or that suspicion. And I teach this a lot. I say we don't arrive at our mistrust dishonestly. And I'm very wary of what I call spiritual junk food and people discussing consciousness philosophy and the mechanics of the human experience in made-up language. It's usually some hacky hastily assembled collage of half-understood truth and just the rest is just conjecture and childish imagination. Scientology, for example, 
is believed by millions of people, or at least followed by millions of people. But that is such a clear, obvious lesson that taught us to rightly be suspicious of that kind of bullshit. The internet is awash with practitioners and advocates of some flavor of spiritual enlightenment that are, if you pay attention to them, it's so obvious that they're simply self-deluded or that they're bullshit artists who have not properly grown up yet. Even if they're well-intended, sometimes they're just confused and they haven't grown up, grown up yet. The worst thing about those kinds is even if they're well-intended, they still muddy the water and they generate noise, making it harder for real seekers to discern what to pay attention to and for real teachers to be heard above the clamor of all the cheap bleating that's going on. But below and beside that turbulent swirl of spiritual ocean trash, there's actually a deep fundamental ocean of truth about human beings, our nature as energy and consciousness. And there's certain very rare people like my guest Sarah who are able to articulate it and join a lot of dots about the chaos of the present moment, a model of the cosmos and our place in it, and doing that in a way that just keeps making more and more sense the more you pay attention to her work and the more you try to understand it. And if you pay careful enough attention, you'll notice that her work dovetails flawlessly with all these bodies of truth we've already normalized, the ones that we actually have learned to trust. Buddhism, for example, is one of them. Sarah uses some novel language or obviously has had to co-opt language to describe what she understands and is actively sharing this because she's charting new territory and in simple terms, somebody had to speak first. And it wasn't as if there was clean, untarnished, shed of perfect language just sitting there waiting for someone to pick it up. They didn't drag along some unfortunate connotations in its wake. This is the problem with taking language back. But one thing you'll notice Sarah has, which is what I look for in people who practice hermetics, is clarity of thought and firmness of thought and discernment. And this is what sets Sarah's use of language apart from what I call the, the turbulent swell of spiritual ocean trash. We jump into conversation with Sarah, and the start of the conversation is a bit slower and might be a bit harder to um, get, get into and get, get interested in. But I strongly, strongly advise you to stick with it because the conversation just gets richer and richer and richer and just keeps picking up momentum, and because the insights are so rare and so extremely valuable. So without further ado, here's my guest, Sarah Alkeldi. So good morning from sunny Perth, Sarah Alkeldi. It's lovely to have you on the Eyes Wide Open Life podcast. Thanks for making the time. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah, um, before this goes to air, as always, I put a, um, a preamble. I do some research and I, I find the words most often that um, folks like to describe themselves by from their websites and their bios. And I, I scrape that and I put something together beforehand. But would you do me a favor for the listeners' perspectives? Can you describe what you're doing right now, your work, and a little bit about yourself and your own potted history in your own words? 
Absolutely. So I would consider myself in general a mystic. How that's expressing itself currently is as an energy healer, a spiritual teacher, a spoken word performing artist. Um, I am very grateful to consider my life's work and purpose to have many different outlets of expression, but essentially my goal is to heal the internal and external, the left and right hemispheres, the higher, the lower, everything that has to do with um, celestial to microcosm integration. That's my whole, that's my whole work. Yeah, I follow quite a lot of that. Um, um, I slowly started following on Instagram. And then I think just before the turn of 2022, you started putting out a lot more video content. Um, and by the looks of things, I'm not tracking the, the stats, but it looks like it's taken off very, very well. Absolutely. It's more than keeping me afloat right now, which is why I gave my graphics um, my graphics guy a raise. <laughs> it's it's literally keeping me afloat right now on social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, that those um, uh, intros and the the backing music and everything is actually all very, very well done. It's attractive. To, it's easy to look at. Thank you. Yes, yeah. that's what it's designed for. And it's so fun to be doing that because, you know, years ago, I never thought that, hey, you're going to have fun on this journey and a lot of it. <laughs> and now I'm here and I'm super grateful to be able to be using my creative, my creativity in such a productive and purposeful outlet. Mm. And, and it certainly is both of those things. Um, I'm going to have mentioned again, before we go to air, exactly how people can find your work and what the context of our conversation is. But I noticed that um, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly the same time to the day, but it was pretty close. I started, I was, I don't know why I was called to, I was called to start making live videos on Instagram and the, um, it's now there for posterity and people can go verify this. The, the, the statement, the intention that I went there with was literally to play so I could practice being more comfortable speaking directly into a camera, slightly unrehearsed or caught off the trot. And what and, and I gave myself twenty days live for um, twenty days in a row twenty what was it like two three minutes minimum and I I did it every single day for twenty days and I think by around day eight I got over myself and um, actually what's there is it probably at least fourteen very very good catalogs of a stream of my stream of thinking and. Like anything, you know, the, the path's all overgrown, but you clear it by walking it. And the next thing, you're uh, you're familiar in a whole new medium. It doesn't take a lot. No, it doesn't at all. And that's so amazing that you were also called to be doing that because, you know, just from the conversations we have had, you have quite a catalog of knowledge. Yeah, thanks for noticing that. <laughs> it's uh, it's the appropriate response, response I try to teach people that they should um, do or say when given a appropriate compliment is if we genuinely are working hard on ourselves towards a certain direction and someone else recognizes it. What a what a terrible poor place we've come to in a society where we're forced to go. Oh no, it's nothing. Oh please, you, you're too kind. I'm so grateful because it's something I've worked on and spent a lot of my life energy on and to be noticed for something that you invest well in is exactly what you want. You want it to be witnessed. Of course, so much of the universe is doing exactly what it's doing for no other reason than to be consciously witnessed. 
Yes, yes. absolutely. Yes. Sarah, um, I've got, uh, as so many listeners would not understand what energy healing is or would find it difficult to distinguish perhaps um, or know how one could be discerning between what you do and versus what, um, you know, there's a lot of coconuts on the, in, especially in the, um, the spiritual community, they, the peddlers of what I call spiritual junk food. So now junk food is obviously something, um, you know, high in, 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 in sugars and colorants and flavorants and, but very low in, in nutritive um, value. And the internet is uh, apparatus which produces exactly that. And so it's going to produce a lot of what people would call charlatans, confused cookies. Just I, I got uh, and I went on a retreat and somebody told me I had psychic powers and now I'm an energy healer. How do we tell good from bad or authentic from inauthentic? Well, first things first, when it comes to that is make sure that nobody's begging you to work on you. That's just right off the gate. If anyone's compelled to help you release your ancestral blocks and burdens and curses and all of that, or, it, or even more so than that, if anyone starts using the word spell, run. <laughs> but aside from that basic discernment, what I would say is find someone who you personally resonate with and then learn from that experience. You know, uh, that's true gnosis is that direct experience. So as long as somebody's in your vibe, whether that's, you know, sometimes people come to me and they want ancestral clearings and I can clearly tell from that information that they're giving me in the, in the general beginning intake that they're really concerned with certain things that I'm not normally as concerned with, but that my services still offer. And so for instance, I can't play police of energy healing if somebody goes to somebody specifically for that example I used ancestral healing um but I guess a person needs to have their direct experience to learn what being in their integrity is as a healer and so that's going to be different for everyone but what that looks like for me at least is being able to offer realistic expectations I even I even go I even modestly produce results with people who ask like, can you, can you do this? Can, can you get me over my ex? Can you this and that? To be honest, I can do a lot of that stuff. It's, it's not really me. I'm facilitating it. It's the higher self mm. releasing blocks and resolving certain things, balancing things. But I, I undersell my services because I don't want anyone to go into something thinking that they are a hundred percent dependent or that this is the yeah. crux, yeah. the dependency of it. And then if it happens, great. I always tell my clients afterwards when they go, what do I expect? I go, I facilitate the healing, the higher self provides it. And the quantum is the, the quantum field carries it out. I have no control over the quantum field and nor would I want to go up on such a beast. So I can't predict what to expect, but I do know there will be positive shifts. I just don't know how they will manifest. Sure. And I've noticed that the um, helping of people in that industry or in that vocation, you cannot help people when the helping of them tests the safe, close walls of their own understanding. You, yeah. you, you can't help an alcoholic who doesn't recognize that they're an alcoholic, for example. So, 
the the power of the human mind, if they're pulling the blankets and the tablecloth over themselves as they fall and wreck the dinner, there's nothing an hour of well-intended effort and love on your part can do to to remedy the stubbornness of a human soul, yes. Exactly. And so this work (laughs) opens things up definitely and creates shifts all on its own, but I, I sell it more as a supplement. I say, if you're already generating momentum in this direction, mm. this is a supplement. It will, it will. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, like, if somebody's going to a, um, a mobility physiotherapist, um, the physiotherapist isn't going to cure the the injury. That's going to take time, but the mobility work is supplemental too. Yeah. Yeah. To be hey, honest, um, who I am today because of the work that I've had done on me by this very modality I practice. Yes, it's um, not like it's not like it gave me the knowledge I know and it gave me the experiences I know, but it released the blocks for me to become the version of myself that can <clears throat> put my art out into the world. Sure, and I'd like to um, talk about this generally now, so that the listeners, even slightly skeptical ones, because I've got an audience that's probably half made up by um, people who value clinical uh, science, um, uh-huh. and half by people who are sort of looking for that that sacred element. And what they've been coming to me for, uh, ostensibly, is a graceful marriage of the two, where neither has to leave their um, dearest personal effects outside. The, the union and so you know I like to keep everything in the realm of what's explicable certainly or at least relatable in our context of science but I understand that the expression especially the academic um, uh, oligarchy that we have around academia and learning etc is so terribly overdue for an enema or a, or a rethink so by the same token, we're not sitting here going, well, if it's not in a, a, a paper, it doesn't exist. Um, I think, you know, all of what we consider supernatural is just papers we haven't written yet and, and parts of the universe we don't yet understand. So I wanted to prefix this for anybody listening, anybody in doubt. I certainly would not be, um, you know, shaking bones with, uh, there's, as I said, there's a lot of people on the internet who claim to do what you can do. It's literally the disease of the internet. And yet I know the place of integrity you come from, the kind of work you do, the messaging that you're putting out, the sanity that you're broadcasting from your uh, your platform. And um, what people also need to understand is that we've got this concept of a predictive model. This is the the ideas, the, the, the picture of the world we, we form painstakingly throughout childhood in the corpus callosum, we don't actually engage with the outer world from a normal human experience. We engage with the hallucination of our sense of meaning and portrayal and spatial organization and causes and effects, etc., that we model in our heads precisely or imprecisely. And often our engagement with the world is due to a, whether that's an easy or difficult passage, is due to belief systems which have been enforced on us, Allah. Don Miguel Ruiz is the, the four agreements, or um, just through the, the journey of childhood, the way it changes our psychology and sets our, our um, moral framework up, etc. And we don't realize we're not very good at understanding how, first of all, these belief systems are not universal and they don't actually, they are not surviving a clash with reality and what a slight paradigm shift could do 
to introduce prosperity, healing, abundance, um, uh, self knowledge, self awareness, um, and different quality of relationships. And so, can we talk about your work in the context of some of that? Sure, I, I'm jumping on the opportunity to though, since you said science, to first highlight that aspect of it. <clears throat> yeah. And you know, you told me in the beginning that are all. I hope. I hope now that this is, can be on the table. But you could always edit this out. Science that we see it today, the form it's representing currently that it's in, is a bitch to the powers that be. So it's not the true science of it. And so what we have taken on is a really perverse version of science that isn't even scientific to anyone who knows or who has rather discernment or, you know, a developed logic. What we have is just like, hmm, a lot of hmm and ha's over things that, you know, are esoteric but totally valid should anyone fund it. And then a lot of funding and a lot of emphasis put onto things that are absolutely nonsensical and hugely damaging. So the first thing that I want to highlight out of all of this, and I know you were asking me more about energy healing, but is that no, science, no, no, no. you know, it is a total joke. And that doesn't mean that it can't be rectified, not at all. As a matter of fact, there's so much positive science out there that's actually being deeply suppressed and hindered. So it's not technology. It's not science in and of itself. Just like we're seeing incorrect forms of masculine energy and incorrect forms of feminine energy, we're seeing an incorrect form of what science is right now. So mm. I just wanted to speak to that first. And so, um, but that's understandable to want to come to things from an empirical perspective absolutely and or so, at least not veer too far away from that that you can't bring it along for the journey yeah yeah and so how my energy healing work fits into all of this is that it, it's quite interesting because i have to know in the person's intake a lot of things that are geared towards their lifestyle and the reason why is because the client's higher self actually for as woo as my practice can per be perceived, it's actually based off of a lot of real down-to-earth things. For instance, uh, I can't run certain frequencies, even if I would like to, and even if they would actually inevitably, inevitably be very supportive to the client, if the client doesn't have enough resources in their energy field. If, if the they depleted themselves, yeah. Absolutely. And so, um, and I know many modalities that and I'm not speaking ill of them, but I know many modalities that don't take that into regard. But, so we can, we, uh, we can um, talk about is what's the kind of things people can do to um, mess with their own um, bathwater, so to speak. Diet. Diet is huge. Quality of sleep, although a lot of conditions affect the ability to get quality sleep, even just our everyday lifestyle as a collective. But quality sleep, because of that deep healing properties in it, um, staying hydrated. So, so many of us are chronically dehydrated. It took a lot of illness in my past to even appreciate hydration because I had, I, I was not at all respecting my body enough to mm. just fundamentally need it meet its most basic needs, such as hydration. Mm. Um, so I've actually come from a background. I think this would be useful to know of intense and extreme autoimmunity that I fully healed now. Right. So none of that came 
from maybe the modalities that I wanted it to, but I sure learned a lot along the way. And so I'm, I'm actually complete gnosis when it comes to science and spirituality being merged with in order to heal because it wasn't through my modality. I would be charging much more if I could heal in autoimmunity through my modality. But it was through a marriage of those two with positive technology that I was able to resolve my autoimmunity. And so I happen to know quite more than a few things about the whole body. And no, the whole I, I follow you completely. Um, there's a gentleman called Dr. Andrew Huberman who has a wonderful podcast, and he is very... Um, it's his delivery and his calmness that has made me follow his work. So first of all, his entire podcast, the sort of boilerplate underneath why he does it is to provide a, um, a low or no cost education service to the public so they can understand their own um, neuroscience, their own um, body chemistry and how those things are going on quite um, esoterically underneath the surface. And we attribute uh, or, or we, we we overlay our ignorance onto that, and we come up with all super, all sorts of silly superstitions about what's making us unwell, including scientific superstitions, because science, as you as you pointed out, is practiced very poorly at the moment. So, just for anyone who's not following this this clearly as I am, what Sarah's <clears throat> saying is the scientific method is uh, a blessing. The way that it's being practiced and implemented is an abomination. <clears throat> and fundamentally, what that goes back to is um, what I spoke about on a previous episode uh, about you get what you incentivize. So there is a term called perverse incentive. It's also called the Cobra effect. It was coined by economist Horst Siebert, and, and it's potentially anecdotal, but it's based about the um, British occupation in India during colonial times. And they were concerned with a number of venomous cobras in Delhi, so they raised a bounty. Um, and then they started noticing more snakes on the city eventually. And they discovered that, um, you know, people, as enterprising people would, started breeding cobras. So not just catching them for the bounty, actually breeding them, they became a source of renewable income. And when the bounty was scrapped, the breeders had no reason to keep the snakes, so they set them free. And so what you get in a perverse incentive is originally it goes to your way that you want it, but very quickly human nature will make it tip over the edge and then it actually the pendulum swings too far the other way. You actually get the opposite of what you incentivized. There's a couple of examples like that. They, you know, you can imagine the Hanoi rat massacre. You, you just do the math for yourself. What they were doing was handing in the tails, but then leaving the rats unharmed. And then later on, they were making sure that the tailless rats could go back into the rat community breed so there would be a steady supply of new rats. So they were doing nothing to address the problem, but they were faithfully operating within the parameters of the incentive that was created by an ignorant authority. And that is exactly what is happening with science at the moment. Beautifully put. Yeah. So um, getting back to why you started energy healing. At, well, actually, let's jump away from that. Let's talk about the alchemist. 
So I would have mentioned already you have a, a moniker or a, a, a brand, let's call it, that you operate under on the interwebs yes. called the, the Alchemist. Um, there must be a lot of people angrily stamping their foot that they didn't get at the dot alchemist first. <laughs> but how much energy I get sent to me? I'd yeah. have to be an energy healer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um I, I I'd like to ask you, when did you start the Alchemist, Sarah? So I had an account before, well, it was the same account. I just changed its name. Mm. Um I don't even know how I was able to get that name. It must have strictly just been um, divine intervention. And I would never re- rarely say that. And I feel like that term is normally taken out of context. So trust me, it must have been divine intervention. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was under a talking lion because mm-hmm. I'm a Leo, I'm a double Leo. So, mm-hmm. and you know, when I started this in 2013, when Instagram first came out, I didn't at all. Okay. So many of the people who are other consciousness accounts, we we all like knew each other at one point. Now there's so many and mm. I don't, but we all, we were very few. And so we knew each other and a lot of them kind of just had this vision. And I was so impressed at the time because they were marketing right away off the gate. And me, I was just sitting there posting pictures with esoteric captions from things I learned almost as a way to vent out my frustration with the world, but then also get out the knowledge I've learned. So it was yeah. almost like this document I was making yep. and it didn't, it didn't catch on for me to finally just make this my career. And so, yeah, it, it was, I could have, I could have taken off a lot sooner is what I'm trying to say. And a lot of other accounts like me had that vision and knowledge, that foresight, and they took off from it. So um, I I noticed quickly that a talking lion wasn't going to be the best marketing. But under my name now, everyone loves the same knowledge, the same exact knowledge, but it's so digestible and it reaches such a larger audience. So what's in a name, huh? Oh, the oh, power is in a name. <laughs> yeah, I try to explain to somebody. I work a lot with words. A lot of my work, as you know, is taking um, what we perceive as everyday words, and then just allowing our—I don't know if it's our conscious or our subconscious or all of them—to all just sort of put hands in and uh, reacquaint ourselves with the actual deep meaning of the word, which was always just there, and we somehow somehow we've missed it. Um, and then I tried to explain this to somebody and they said, you know, no, I don't work with, with um, words. I just work with energy. And I said, man, you don't get it. Words are energy. They are power. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what is the, your relationship to the word alchemy? What does alchemy mean from where you alchemy, stand? Yeah, yeah <clears throat> it's a spiritual transformation. And, you know, there's so many different words and people have their own connotations, but for me, alchemy is the spiritual ascension. And I say that in a very, you know, arcane way, um, even though a lot of the new age is filled with the arcane and they're getting a lot of heat for it, which is hilarious. Um, but anyways, yeah, it, to me, it's about the journey from dark to light. It's a, it's about being able to go through the whole, you know, on a visceral level, the whole evolution process of consciousness. Mm. And so with that, there's specific stages and alchemy 
highlighted those very in depth. And it's been made out to be um, strictly like a art of metals because it did originate from metallurgy in Egypt. However, the funniest thing about all of this for those who are skeptical about, you know, the spiritual roots of alchemy is that Hermes himself, the father of alchemy, said in the opening of the Hermetica, a a very sad omen about, oh, whoa, everyone will not be able to see for so long. He has this like prophecy about how everything will lays it out pretty dark. Yeah. Yeah. How everything will be the opposite. Where once there was spiritual vision and sight, it will now be detached. Where there was once regard for the, you know, sacred, that will now be turned into profanity. All of these things. And then leading up to finally saying that there will come a time where the tables will then turn again back to its spiritual origins. And so what I find very funny is, is that alchemy is those that return back to the spiritual origins. And a lot of people who study or regard alchemy are, are, are forgetting the part where he said that it will be in its darkness. And so it's funny because that's what he's specifically talking about, where there will be the spiritual roots of something um, detached from. In this case, it would be, oh, it's strictly an art of metals. Yeah, well, um, I I have a theory which runs concurrent with that. So I've got two things I want to say. The first is I sort of recoined the word supervenience. So I don't think supervenience is a word. I think something can be supervenient with something else. So this is where you get two um, non-mutually exclusive truths that can happily ride in the same bus together. So, for example, um, I can tell you about the a novel by Shakespeare or a play by Shakespeare. I can tell you the plot. I can tell you the story. I can tell you all of this. And these are all inherent, evident, um, obvious truths. But if I tell you the uh, chemical makeup of the pages that the story was written on or the chemical compound of the horse glue that the stitching of the binding is made in or what the metal content is of the ink or what the blood group was of the, the first publisher or, you know, what the, the, there are certain truths which are all equally true, but they don't really add to the story. Um, so I can tell you things about, let's call it um, Romeo and Juliet and their backstories and but what was happening politically in the city-states of, of Italy at that time. That will add some context to the story. So, and yet no less accurately true. And what science sometimes tends to do is to look at more fundamental from a physics perspective and go, ah, this is where truth lies. So they pick a layer of supervenience that's uh, suitable to them. And they've gotten themselves into a bit of a game where the, the chemist will come past and say, no, no, boys, you're all wrong. Sorry, this actually is, here's the manifest of the chemical compounds and their bonds to each other. And then the Atomic physicists will come past and scoff and go, no, 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 please. Here's the atomic makeup of all of this and the valencies and the number of electrons and the charges and the ionization. And then a quantum physicist will come along and scoff at them. And yet ever more granular detail that they get into, they add nothing to the actual essence of the story. So there is 
there are layers of of relevance and importance which are equally true but don't add anything to the piece so absolutely yeah yeah and then if if we're talking about um about alchemy one of the concurrent uh, supervenient realities that i think exists is the hindus have this concept of the yugas these long cycles where it's ostensibly now there's multiple counts for the yugas but in one of the counts it, it clearly i think as it cycles within cycles it clearly indicates that we're in a the dark shitty end of the the roller coaster journey and it's going to get a little bit darker before we we head um back home and you said something earlier you said um you know it was due to the autoimmune uh, challenges i was having with my own health that forced me to sharpen up my understanding and so i have a little saying that i share with a lot of people it goes um discomfort is the only cure for apathy and therefore extreme discomfort is the only cure for extreme apathy and there are if anyone knows anything about the yugas what it does is it explains why in our arc as we travel through the solar system and then the galaxy the um vibrational sort of tone of the backwater that we're swimming through either lends itself to things which are more literal or more figurative so all the old fairy stories and people living side by side with spirits and intelligences in nature and that being absolutely interwoven in their myth it seems perfectly plausible back then but their technology for example was um comparatively primitive whereas we've gone into the the complex and the literal and all of our expressions of language music art etc have come along that way as well and thereby it's it's a polarity you can't have it all unless you're um highly conscious human being that you leave these things that you throw out with the bathwater so as we become more literal as the world the baton of learning was passed from egypt to greece you know in in the book of hermes he actually says do not give this to the greeks because they will translate it and they'll translate it badly because their letters are phonetic not um hieroglyphic there's no there's no meaning attached to the the phonetics of the of the words we're using it's just sounds that we're making and ironically all of our best translations even the really good ones from the academics from france they are translated from the greek and you have to reverse engineer some of these words to actually get to the actual deep meaning which of course is always mind blowing <clears throat> but this all happened on such a slow arc that we didn't notice because of our little narrow window of context of the human life and all the small things we get busy with and get freaked out about so what made alchemy and the allegory of it possible and make so much more meaning back then has given way to our the darling of the the enlightened mind in the western context which is literal um what do you call reductionist and so we can't really understand what the context of alchemy would have been yes yeah yeah he he said please don't they're they they have a vain tongue <laughs> that's it It, absolutely and so really even that as you were even talking about the yugas and tying it into the interdimensionals <clears throat> and different experiences that we could be having or we can be in and are and from figurative to literal all of that including the phoenician translations 
all of that I can look at as a valid story arc leading to something no Mm. different than the suppression of the feminine energy coming into a time now of reclamation. I view all of that as like a story arc. And so it's not necessarily that like on one hand, yes, it's all extremely very real and it poses a very real threat. Should we remain within that inertia? And at the same time, it's also, you know, the the springboard that we set up in order to gain that higher consciousness, the challenges, the disconnect, the darkness that we need to springboard. <clears throat> the discomfort, you mean? Yes. And you're talking specifically. And also the, the distortion, as you were talking about, the of language, and then also the pendulum from figurative to literal. Yes. Now, we're, we're both talking about um, the, the context of an individual human life and experience, but also the collective experience as a society. Now, much of the work that you're doing on YouTube at the moment is literally trying to explain to everybody what the fuck is going on from a perspective where you can thread a needle between so many things which people are babbling about but don't understand. Can you give us a, this is a a question on the hot seat, can you give us the five-minute overview of how we could see the world in a way that would make infinitely more sense than what we're struggling with at the moment. I would love to, because my YouTube channel is now my baby, my passion project. I'm actually phasing my energy healing out. So yes. uh, yeah, um, absolutely. Can so, you start by telling us what the objective of that vocation is? The channel? Yes. What, what's, what, what do you, what is your aim? World domination. That's friend. it. Let's begin right away. <laughs> I'll bring to, tea. Be, to get yes. all the Pokemon. I want yes. all of the Pokemon. I want as many Pokemon as, as possible without falling out of integrity. And it's funny because with the nature of me and the nature of my work, you simply can't, you won't reach people with the knowledge, no matter how much you were to put sprinkles on it and, you know, syrup or whatever. So it just won't reach everyone and that's fine, but I want to cast the widest nets as possible for the content that I'm you know, representing and putting out there. And so with that, it is to play my part as an agent and catalyst of higher consciousness to the fullest and best of my capacity. And the more of that gets transmitted into the minds of people who are struggling with what they think is everyday problems, maybe their boats can start turning in the water as well. Yes, because one of my strongest suits is to be able to activate a being's understanding of higher concepts and link them with it. And so if they were struggling with perhaps some things or not even maybe interested in it, but then they hear it from this perspective or this angle, and then all of a sudden things start making sense, or now, you know, even they have their own thirst activated for gnosis or what have you. Yeah. Sarah, so, you know what will give context to people listening? Because some of them might still be mystified as to what we're talking about. Explain war from your perspective. This will bring Explain everybody war, W-A-R. All oppression leads to a state of war. So what war is, is denial and oppression that leads to dominance. Because when we're oppressing something, we have now wanted to create dominancy over it. And so war is strife to the nth degree externally of internal manifestation. And so really what's going on in the world right now 
is a two-part. We're seeing a lot of organic and synthetic conflict happening. The organic aspect of the conflict of or the concept of war that's happening is that oppression energy, the full incarnation or embodiment or the full archetypal energy of domination, the toxic masculine for people who understand that better in the spiritual community, that suppression energy. And then what's happening synthetically, because I did say that this was organic and synthetic happening, is the the re-traumatizing of the human collective, because that's always one of the main reasons why there's war inserted into our reality. So of course that all won't be rectified until it's rectified within the collective consciousness, but there is always that external festering of a wound rather than letting it heal and scab and go through that process. And so it's so much easier to manipulate reality when you are able to inflict trauma. And that's what war is. It's an agent of control in that sense as well. So just to be clear for anyone listening, when you pointed out this um, domination effect or intent that's being expressed, I want everyone listening to be very clear that this is every other piece of news or information or podcast or discussion is always going to be caught in the the partisanship of one chosen side of a dichotomy or the other. In other words, when somebody says oppression, what they're always talking about is Russia's oppression of Ukraine or NATO's oppression of Russia. And what Sarah is talking about, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, is the way in which groups of humans are sharing the space and the resources and trying to ensure that they have enough, whether that's power or leverage or control, is by exerting the intent to dominate on each other on every conceivable strata of interaction. That's political, financial, economical, um, flow of information, uh, social justice, etc. It's not it's not this group v, v that group, and this is the ones that we pick that we say are, are good or right. Correct. So in this case, you know, we're what we're seeing with to add to what you're saying is the victim perpetrator cycle in its most brute, crass, and physical form. And so that's not to say that there's not actually a dominating and oppressive force. Absolutely. It's just that it, you know, uh, until the human collective rectifies that internally enough to the degree that we're able to come to a higher consciousness, we're always going to see organic and synthetic side-by-side expressions of the domination and the suppression Mm. um, dynamic. I actually wrote something last night. I said, what a time to live in where I genuinely fear the propaganda more than I fear the war. <laughs> because well, you're paying attention. <laughs> yeah, well, this is exactly it. Because what, what is happening, if anyone's not noticing, <clears throat> is yes, on the face of it, like every single other thing that that captures the attention of the media and of the people on social media is something in a narrow perspective, is going wrong and sh- and it would be nice to address it or stop it. Absolutely. But how that's being done is people are having a bait-and-switch game played on them all the time. They are getting animated, made frightened, and then a scapegoat is swapped underneath the cup when you're not looking, and then you get given a legitimate place, ostensibly supported by the group or the crowd, to go invent your 
reluctance at uh, your discomfort on. So if you're feeling oppressed, even if your own nation is oppressing you financially, like Americans have done for uh, lower middle class for years, all you need to do was generate a war with economic incentives and then go and gather up all these people who have been pushed onto the breadline through neglect and through intent and then say to them, here is a way that you can subconsciously and psychologically scratch the itch underneath the surface that makes you not feel like a valued part of society. Here, take this rifle and what's more, not only will you be contributing, you will, sir, in fact, be a hero and you will be defending our freedoms. And there, go and take your crap and your bullshit and your poorly curated mental health and go and fight those people over there. Well, it's the Roman catharsis, just in a different form. That's why they had the um, the stadiums with the, you know, the, the blood Yeah, you put the thumb up or down, and it was a way of exercising that collective catharsis for blood. Yeah. Yeah. And then also, I mean, more on like a deeply esoteric note to what you just said, there is... And this isn't even just esoteric. I've actually heard this years ago when I was in college, which was funny that they admitted it, um, but that there is actually a very pragmatic service for war. And that's, it helps. They, they spoke about how important it was for there to be, a, I mean, essentially a bloodletting of the poor and that these regions, these socioeconomic statuses are kind of like the sacrifice. <laughs> and exactly. they're the ones that do the work. And, and they, they made it sound almost dharmic. And, you know, one could argue on a higher level it is it or is. not. But the point be, yeah, uh, but the point being that this isn't even esoteric, even though I, I do find it that way. I think it's it, both. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's both. I think... Um, I think, you know, every time there is bloodletting on that scale, it is a psychological catharsis and release. Um, but our release, what we're releasing is still energy, which is attached to story. Story can be manipulated and energy can be manipulated. And that's not to say we can't edit the story or reduce the fiction part of the story and get a more accurate predictive model in our heads and then process our energy in more constructive ways. We can still get, if we're more conscious, to a different form of letting or venting. The simple act of giving people games where even if it's not actual bloodletting, even if they're just watching their team beat the other team, is something as simple as rugby in the country that I came from. If you give people that enough and you, you ferment a local rivalry and they can process that expression in small local context, non-violent or at least non-bloodshed related, they don't have to well up. It's, it's repressed societies that are not allowed to vent in the manner of their choosing, which means they're not allowed to actualize. And because naturally they'll actualize organically anyway. And so you can um, create these arenas or, or methods for people to siphon this energy in a slightly more constructive way. So even though it's an inevitability, war doesn't have to be an inevitability. 
No, it doesn't have to be. And in fact, that should be, dare I say, the destiny of humanity is to come to that visceral realization of how to even speak as, and I know you and I are advanced, but to even the way that we talk about war, not you and I, but the way that war is presented horrifies me because it's so, it's so removed. The, the the way that we talk about it, like, oh, this or the media, how it portrays it, how how normalized war is, is actually horrifying. It reminds me of when we watch I, it like it's a documentary, not like it's happening to our people. Yeah. We talk about it like it's like okay to be a, oh, it's war. And then so this is the and that's and it's a hold on, hold on. This exists. This I should know. not exist. Right, right, right. You should right. have a one v one. The the refined end, the exalted form of this concept is one v one. And you know, you know that's bad if I'm saying that because I could come up with a lot better solutions. But I'm just going to put those on hold right now and meet humanity where it's at. Humanity wants to rumble, or a certain country wants to rumble, or not even that. A certain you know psychopath wants to rumble. Okay, one v one. I will rather push humanity in that direction. Because I know that there's too far of a gap at the moment to have all of humanity where I perfectly stand. So I would rather just push them in the direction of a 1v1 and kind of get that going, kind of get that popular. Wow, Sarah. Okay, so you've heard it your first, folks. Sarah's um, advocated for um, for death matches, okay? <laughs> it's it's, it's going to go I straight mean, to Twitter, yeah. I mean, that that's obviously that's not the last destination to this party bus but honestly sure. let's get people in that, that mind that first. is still a step in, in in the right direction so look um let's let's take people through what we both believe is actually happening on the planet right now so i'll give my short take and then can you please fill it in from from your context so the short take from what i can see is the cosmos is as close to if there was a creator God as we're going to ever encounter directly. It's that richness, that fullness, that creative principle, and all of its um, slightly invisible opposite principles that allow the show to, to keep cooking. And this is on an atomic level, a quantum level, et cetera, et cetera. One of the byproducts of, of variability, change, and all these constants that we have, the interplay between the constants and the variables, this is what gives us our understanding of quantum physics, physics, et cetera. And this is being built in such a way that it eventually lends itself or conspires to propagate or support life. Life as we know it is where there can be experience and where, we, where, where, where time really becomes a factor. And the building blocks of the cosmos conspired over billions of years to eventually evolve into life forms that could support sentience. And specifically, where it could have this threshold moment, this horizon, event horizon, beyond which it can develop the capacity for self-awareness. And at that point in time, the, the waiting um, ushers of consciousness were just waiting in the wing, looking for someone to guide them through the aisles. And humans arrived on the scene and we specialized and we started co-creating with the universe. We started making story. We started developing large civilizations, et cetera. But fundamentally, the, the dials that got us here were just the dials of nature. 
survival, seeking pleasure, avoiding pain, um, the aim for survival, etc. And those dials can only take us so far. And human beings in our exploitation of our space have <clears throat> spread and spread and spread like a cancer or a cell or a child even in the womb that is divided like a zygote and is absolutely filling the entire context of the space it can occupy in its current modality. And, and so the signal becomes inverted. What used to be a safe womb now becomes a kind of like a, a growing message of urgency to face the one thing that you don't want to face in order to come to another place. So you, the, the, the baby in the womb starts actually looking for a way out and then the cervix and the birth canal opens and it goes towards what from its context must feel the closest thing to death it's ever encountered. And it has to do that half willingly. The signal has to be inverted and you have to move towards death so that you can jettison what's too small for you to come to a bigger place. Now, that's what happens to people spiritually. It's what happens to businesses and companies and projects when they break the bounds of their initial incubation. And it's what's happening to society and human beings on a grand scale. <clears throat> and we cannot sit unconsciously with our hands off the wheel hoping that nature is going to keep coming up with the next answer because nature is, in fact, providing the problem for us in concert with our human nature. And so we have to transcend our human nature and adopt the actual heritage and birthright, which is consciousness, so that we can become stewards of the garden and take this to impossible places that we can't even envision. You have a far more pragmatic cosmology than I hold. Yeah, I like it, but it's far more pragmatic. Um, well, this is I just mean, the, um, the radio version, uh, Sarah. This is this is okay. to get people listening because I'm also trying to cast the net as wide as possible. And like yeah. I say, those oh. things can be supervenient, um, and you can come to the truth through either of the two doors, and it will still make sense. Yeah, I don't even know if I want to give you my version now because that was so, you know, like you're you're really meeting everyone. Um, but yeah, so for me, this is um, very much, we're in a construct of light. We're in a, a universe construct of, of? A construct of light. Light. <clears throat> so we're in the universe of light, exploring the construct of light. And that outside of this universe for all intents and purposes, we can't really speak about what that is, but that there is a multiverse that's currently actually trying to be <laughs> overlaid with a metaverse. And I am not talking about the metaverse at all. I'm talking about the multiverse. So we're in a universe out of the multiverse. And from my cosmology, um, we are exploring what light is. And so light splits itself within this universe into two forces, the feminine and the masculine energy and light and dark. And the lower we go into this dimension, into the dimensions, the more addicting one could say it is, or another way of saying it, it rather than the more addicting is the denser things get. The more compelling the illusion. The more compelling the illusion, the more riskier, the more <clears throat> can I get out of this because there's so much inertia down there. And that's what you would call once you start going to the lower ends and really, you know, bungee jumping from this construct of light, you're getting into no man's land, but you're also getting the most intense and the most immersed amount of what light is. It's just now 
can you get out of it? Mm. And that's the journey. And so I don't think everyone's on the same cycle of the journey, meaning a lot of us in the spiritual community believe it's going to be a global cycle, meaning a global awakening and that there's going to, that everything is at like a, an all or there's all or nothing approach. And I see it more. So, although I find that very beautiful and romantic and I'm totally down for that, should that be the case, I view it more as cycles, meaning, you know, maybe groups, it, look at the Mayans, look at all these other different, you know, may, maybe look at the alchemical process itself. Does all of the Saturn lead make it? No, you get it refined into gold. You get it refined into whatever made it through all of the purification process. So a lot of different things point to there being this sort of like cyclical nature where e- even the yugas, um, although yeah, the yugas, they don't even make it out, everyone. <laughs> so there's this like cyclical nature of like, there's these windows of ascension, I call them, but a person can easily just see it as an awakening or higher levels of consciousness. And that there's a specific amount of people who have refined themselves to the degree that they can receive this awakening or this higher level of consciousness. And then from there, perhaps start the bungee cord reverse into or eventually out of this universe and onto the next universe of exploration. But, Mm. um, but yeah, it's definitely from my point of view and my cosmology, if I had to sum it up, it would be the soul's journey through the multiverse. Let's explore this concept. Um, A lot of times we think that like light is all there is, especially in the spiritual community, the community that I belong to and in the consciousness community, we're really heavy on light. And I am too. I consider myself a light worker. However, I will never be so bold as to say light is all there is. That's just light. They're all it is in this narrative because we're in this universe. Hmm. It's also the um, the one that matters for the here and now. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Because yeah, we don't even need to care about what's outside of this universe because we're not in that story no, or we're not in that not time. If, now it's about light. So it's the the bungee cord. It's not about this is what happens this, uh, in this other universe. Even mm. if I get downloads of that, it mm. does not matter. And that's not even going to be accurate. Mm. So we're in this specific for a reason. And Sarah is the ambassador. At this point, when you get to the third dimension, when you have a name and a home and you're a body, at this point, you've become so pixelated that you're only an ambassador of a consciousness that is so much wider that you can only fit into just this. You become like a Rubik's Cube version. And so it's cute. It's endearing in the sense to see us played out like this That's because right. we're representatives <laughs> of something. Transition phase of evolution, conscious evolution. So by yeah. the way, our cosmologies actually don't differ that vastly. So I um, spent a lot of time paying attention to Kabbalah and um, obviously hermetics, as you know, and uh, then I went and had a direct experience and went and looked for myself, as you and I have discussed before. <clears throat> and I found that a lot of our cosmological models um, were hitherto very naive, very childlike. Um, and there's a bit of growing up that needs to happen consciously and the paradigms that we need to consider. We, we don't even realize how often we are dragging along this naive framework with us as we try and make sense of everything we're looking at. And um, I completely concur 
with what you're saying. I just have different starting points of articulation. But if you get me privately in ceremony and you ask me what's going on, I will tell you that this is just all light from the emanation um, and the introduction of duality and how the seven principles are playing out in amongst themselves. And what's the point of all of this? The point of this is for the universe to a witness itself and to raise a child of its making up to the point where it can um, play with the building blocks of creation in a mutually constructive uh, way. But look at how compassionate <clears throat> you have used your intelligence to be able to say, hey, I can speak this language and I can speak this one too and meet anyone where it's they're at. Yeah, it was kind of, um, it wasn't out of nobility. It was out of what I believed was like utility. So the, the question I gave myself was, if you really are coming from love, this can't be easy. And you have to meet people where they're at. And even that you have to be discerning about, because if you meet people too close to where they're at, then you there's no incentive. So there has to be, so that's why I call myself the bridge, because I can take you from this side to that side, but you can only come by the narrowing of the way. You can't bring all your bullshit with you. So <clears throat> it's a bit of the, the masculine and the feminine principle according to one, but it's 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 unmoving and it's um, you know, I've said kindness is not the greater form of kindness. So I'm I'm doing this to be kind to a point, but I won't bend further. If if you know what I mean. Because that starts becoming a disservice to people because they they want the spiritual junk food or the, the lower part of ourselves, the weaker part of ourselves is addicted to the spiritual junk food and the easy answers and the the redeemer idea that something's going to come along and just wave a wand and it'll all be okay. Um, and those are childish ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I don't perceive you as permeable. I see you as extent, extending. And that's what a hand yeah. is, right? <clears throat> yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, what's next, Sarah? At what point in time does the chaos in the world grow to the point where our small but noble efforts are not doing enough? Even Because at the end of the day, if anything, if any calamity strikes where the internet is impaired, there goes our entire means of communicating. Awesome. <laughs> no, not so awesome. <clears throat> I know. I've heard this in many ways. Um, even about the water, the water, got to get the water filters. I have the water filters. I cared about filtered water before mm. apocalypse. <laughs> but Apocalypse now. Yeah, be <clears throat> before the revealing of what is. Um, I cared about water, but I guess this is just more an advanced version of that. And we already see that happening. I mean, at least I see that happening. I see people making moves to go off the grid. So what next is that? Should oh, there be that? I, I don't that, even, I don't even mean that. I'm saying like, if we're here oh. to do a good thing and <clears throat> our, our good thing is still precariously dependent on something which can get taken away or can get stopped, <clears throat> our ability to connect and transmit just goes away. And I'm worried about that. Not worried, but it is a concern. Yeah. And it shapes <clears throat> the way I communicate on my platforms. It entirely does. I'd be far more unhinged. Mm. So I, I think 
sovereignty to the best degree with the platforms we're using, meaning that like, do you have more than one? Do, do you have, you know, community on your own website? Can you, you know, uh, things of that nature to the best, because I want this to change, but I do foresee it only intensifying. Yeah. I don't think things in the world are going to get better before, uh, before they get much worse. Yeah. And I'm speaking specifically at the moment about intensifying to censorship. Intensifying to censorship. Yeah. Yeah. So So most of the listeners wouldn't understand uh, the reality that you and I face with censorship. Oh, you don't want to let them in on behind the curtains. You want the audience to see the stage and what they (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So first of all, Why are we being censored? What's the incentive? And what's the preferred outcome for the censors? The outcome is that the vibration of the collective remains in a state of fear and scarcity consciousness because you cannot control and you cannot effectively manipulate people unless they are in a you know substantial state of fear and um, manipulation. That's also why none of this would be happening in the world that we're seeing if humanity wasn't emotionally stunted. So if we really want to talk about compassion, you'd see me be talking about literally like developmental stages, which I don't talk about at all. Because the developmental stages of a human being are what we're now being used against us. And uh, mass and very um, aggressive manner. And so if humanity would be able to recognize gaslighting, if if humanity had the emotional intelligence to be able to um, navigate what's happening, we wouldn't be able to even be manipulated and controlled to the degree we are. But, you know, there's so many distractions. Consciousness in a word, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So so who is is they in this piece? Um, I refer to them as the powers that be. I've heard a lot of people in my community refer to them as the powers that were. I prefer the powers that were. Had I, should I not be experiencing them as be, but I'm experiencing them currently. So, um, yeah, they are the parts of our collective psyche that um, one could say are in denial. They're the manifestation, the incarnation. So we're all like archetypal energies and we're all embodying Everything, we're all embodying the whole hologram. It's just that we're expressing ourselves as certain dominant archetypes. That's why people identify more with goodness or more with, you know, being a disseminator of information. But then some people identify more with being able to hoard an occult knowledge and then everything in between those. So uh, who I'm specifically speaking to is the, the incarnated manifestations of denial itself, of non-being itself, and not the non-being that is the Tao concept, the non-being that's more of the Kabbalah concept, uh, the ones that are a negation of good. A negation of being, negation of existence. Yeah. Yeah. So I just call it denial. Yeah, sure. And just for anyone listening, um, again, if you if you ever work or encounter more of Sarah's work, which I'm hoping you already have, when you encounter terms like this, even though they have um, connotations of what people call woo-woo, the point is they're perfectly, they have perfectly serviceable contexts and explanations, which require you, you don't have to walk down 
some um, path with sprinkles on it. It's the, this idea of um, what was the term you used uh, to describe them, Sarah? Or this this manifestation? It was um, non-being. Yeah, non-being. Non-being. You could just call it psychopathy if you'd prefer. Sure. That, that, well, that's yeah. exactly what I was going to say. So when you get uh, a group and the group's aim ostensibly has to be survival and flourishing. You do get philosophers that if you ask them what is ultimately good, they can give you a logical answer. Why Why would um, suffering and existence or why would flourishing and existence or survival be, be any better, all things considered? And from a purely logical rhetoric perspective, that, that can even sort of make a kind of sense. But they can't really make a kind of sense because the person who they would make sense to would not be alive if you utterly played out the convictions of their philosophy. So sentience and the the flourishing of all species and the opportunity for species to grow and actualize and and take part in this um, this, this whole experience, you have to start with that as an assumption or a premise. <clears throat> and anything that isn't by default, naturally aligned with that, something's wrong. And yet it exists. You get a rogue lion in a pride that starts killing all the cubs. You do get a sociopath who, who isn't wired the rest, the same as the rest of humanity. And what fills their cup and makes them feel satisfied in themselves would shock and horrify the average human being. But because we have this culture of shame and looking away, these intentionalities and expressions tend to sort of slide into the shadow. They never want to be seen out into the light because human beings looking at the behavior which we allow, if it's right in our face, we can't handle the shame of it. So we actually all want it behind the curtains in the periphery. And this is why today human slave trade still exists. This is why there's petabytes of child exploitation materials on Instagram, Facebook, Dropbox, AWS, Amazon Web Services, every single space where you can store a file, it happens. And the reason it persists is because given the archaic nature of our laws, the people that want to help the most would have to break the law to actually be able to help. And the problem is too complicated to fix. And our incentives are all leaning in the directive of these systems that we've created to buoy innovation and progress in inverted quotes along which is media, democracy, our economy, and social media. And these things are all incentivized to just solve problems, crush it, move forward. They're not incentivized to go find the weakest and the vulnerable and really look after them. Yeah. And that's what we mean when there's this expression of non-being that's manifesting in the world. And all you have to do is make even the actors that you think are the evil cabal all you have to do is trigger their fears and their vigilance and their tribalism, and they will just default to behavior, which is what we would call non-being. And then humanity is in the middle. We're in the crux position where our nature, our true nature, is actually <coughs> programmable. So, Is programmable? Yeah. Can you, you explain? Absolutely. So... All of the horrors you mentioned are totally 
caused by that, the, the complete disconnect, you know, uh, of their ability, the psychopathy, the, the incarnation of non-being. And yet it wouldn't be able to fester and thrive if it weren't for us being so heavily permeable and influenced. Our nature is we're put at the crossroads of free will. That's actually the gift of the third density that we're in. It's that this could go up or down. This could go left or right. And we're just kind of put here as you, you don't get free will the higher up you go in octaves. There's two, there's, there's not, there, you're, you have to be such an illusion. You have to be such with a blindfold on to really truly have choice. So that's the gift of this realm. It's that where we come in with the veils on, we come in kind of like from scratch, not really, but you get what I'm saying. And then from there, it's what would you choose? What would you choose if you had no knowing? What would you choose if this or that? And then, so you have these archetypal embodiments of these different influences or forces and humanity, if we were not truly programmable and heavily influenced, this would not thrive. These wouldn't because they'd, they'd happen and we would take that course of action to rectify it. And then that would be something that, you know, was traumatizing that happened. But here. Nature has a self-correcting mechanism if you leave it to itself, but humans only have half of it. Right. And so it's like almost like a virus, like it's a virus that gets inside humanity now and now influences it to act like non-being. And then now you have you now you have humanity so resonating and entrained with non-being that it would actually Defend be normalized. It. Yeah. Yeah. To be a part of a, a, a trade, as you said, to do that. So now you have the whole the whole goal. I'll tell you the opposite of my goal, but you want to know their goal is to have humanity completely programmed to the point where they act and look no different than them. This the collective psyche is shaped as their psyche. As sociopaths and heartless consumers. Yeah. So just to bring everybody along for this journey, in physics, in astrophysics, in the creation of what we marvel at when we look up at the stars, it's not all prettiness and light up there either. That whole light show, the whole spectacle would not exist without chaos and darkness. Chaos is absolutely essential part of the mix, and it has for want of a better word, positive and negative expressions. We cannot do away with it. There's no childish ideal where everything just comes roses and and fairy lights. Unfortunately, these forces are absolutely necessary for generation and creation. However, in the neck of the woods that we're stuck in, in our arc of evolution as a species, we are stuck in this place where uh, we're, we're... blind to the obvious and we're blind to our blindness we don't we're we're programmable and we don't know that we're programmable as soon as you realize that you're programmable you start finding ways to look for the interface so you can start hacking the code so that you can turn the vehicle of your experience anywhere you want to because it's it's both a gift and a curse being programmable is if you're not if you're asleep at the wheel you just comply with the manipulation of um, gravitational objects like ideologies or wants and needs, et cetera, that get laid out for you that you have no choice in. And you are acting the, the pantomime of choice in the maze that's been set. 
which is where the metaphor of the matrix comes from. Yeah. And then the ultimate goal would be, I mean, at least for me, uh, that's subjective, but the ultimate goal would be to create, to align with the substantial, the soul, and to, to transcend the programmable, the programmable being, you know, what we know as the negative aspects of ego, not, and, you know, as you said, there's two of everything. So there's the positive aspects of ego. That's just the neutral ability to, we cannot have a separate experience without ego. And Correct. the ego doesn't even dissolve even in higher realms. It Correct. just it shifts, but it doesn't dissolve. You'll always have a form of the ego, but the negative ego, the one that's programmed, the one that is sure. mechanical, the one that's tied to karma and inertia. So that brings me to a um, an idea that I try to explain to people and understanding that I try to explain to them. I actually draw a, a cross that looks like a Christian cross. It's got nothing to do with Christianity, but maybe it does, but not in this context. <clears throat> the, the the vertical axis is the um, the experience of being a embodied self, a self. In other words, having an ego and an identity and a sense of agency, but below the crossbar, that involves the burden of choice. Once you hit the crossbar, that's what Zen monks are aiming for, the crossbar where you're not driven by the impulsion or compulsion of choice, you suddenly hit the part of complete equanimous uh, conscious awareness, but there's no self to be pulled in either direction, and you can have a full view of the entire experience. It's not that a Zen monk can sit and look at a tragedy and have equanimity and not be moved. It's that there is no self to be moved when witnessing a tragedy. They see everything just as an interplay of forces and activities. And there's not an agency in them that wants a good thing or doesn't want a bad thing. There's no wanting. They're simply observing what is. And they don't attach sentiment or attachment to anything. Above the crossbar is the formation of will, which is the personal gravity of the self. The self never leaves the equation. It's the old modalities the surrender of Buddhism and and Taoism and Zen, which says you relinquish self, that's the end game. Our end game is no longer relinquishing self. That was a way out of the ride when the ride was too wild and not going anywhere. Now we're in a different place. This is a different time with a different truth. And now the option is to fully retain the self, not just retain the self, but become a noble self so that you can be a worthy steward of whatever's going to come next. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what I tell my clients as well. And um, yeah, I say that the old spiritual paradigm, that's what I call what you just said was how many aspects of myself can I cut off to get out of here or to get to heaven or to get whatever, which is and, part of the alchemical process. Well, yeah, but the part. the new spiritual paradigm would be what I would consider the the alchemical process, which is how much can I refine and exalt and, you know, go through this um, procedure enough, which is ultimately a reclaiming of those aspects into that, you know, the alchemical fire. Yeah, exactly. Because it's, you want to take everything in your care along with you as far as you can. Yeah, that's really funny because a lot of people I get so many compliments about how I how I tell it like it is, how I'm a straight shooter and it is funny cuz all I'm literally all I'm doing if they knew 
my, if they knew where I'm coming from, I'm coming from, no, me and the Buddhists have the same goal. I'm just taking a different route there. I need to be myself. I need to fully be Sarah because I want to get out of here. And I need to take all of my parts with me if I want that. Exactly. It's really, it's really funny because it's not because, oh, I'm going to be the straight. Sh-. It's like, no, it's because this is a healing process. I need to be seen, not seen as, oh, <laughs> one multidimensional aspect. That's another, you know, um, pass off of what we considered enlightenment when we didn't have enough consciousness to discern that. Mm. Said something like, um, peace is not when your wants and your feelings cease. Peace is when you have no restriction or, or lack of allowance of them. And then enlightenment is when you can literally get out of the way of getting out of the way. Because uh, people, first of all, they can get out the way, but they're walking around with this invisible, humble brag, oh, my God. <clears throat> I did it. And then you're still in your own way. You, it, it's a, it's a, like a, a genjutsu. It's a trick played on, on the trick. I, I explain it in terms of Bugs Bunny cartoon. <clears throat> I always explain to somebody, if you're on this journey and you want to marshal your ego, you really need to understand how it works and how efficient it is and how vastly superior at its game it is than you in the beginning. It knows everything you know and it never sleeps. It's, it watches and sees absolutely everything and it, it, it'll catch the smallest wind in its sails. And so if you imagine Elmer Fudd, he's got his rifle and he's, he's finally chased the, the bunny out the, the, the hunting cabin and he's sort of vigilantly poking through the, the curtains to make sure it doesn't come back. And, of course, the bunny goes around the back of the house, comes back in, and he puts his arm around Elmer Fudd's shoulder and now the two of them are looking for the bunny. <laughs> and this happens all the fucking time, especially when you've just woken up. I say, <clears throat> all right, so you're going to start noticing this more and more. And you can literally watch the, <laughs> the expression on people's faces and then you tell them the paradigm of what's happening and how it happens. And I say, so you'll then you'll, ah, you'll figure the bunny's there again. And then you'll angrily chase it out the door. And then a voice will say to you, well done, mate. Well done. And you think, yeah, that was, I fucking nailed that one. And then the other voice will go, only you. Only you were so clever. You go, yeah, yeah, you're right. And then you go, oh, it's the bunny again. And then you take it and you scoot it out the door. And you're sitting there a little bit vigilant and it's too quiet. And then your ego goes, wow, it's really quiet. You go, yeah. It was interesting, man. How you found it twice, the second time, that surely takes some uh, some skill. And then you go, yeah, as it happens, I'm very vigilant. Only you could be so vigilant. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it goes. It just never ends. But it becomes a, instead of this very childish notion of a hero fighting this evil scaled beast, it really becomes an act of love and integration and going, oh, there you are. Okay, come on then. Come sit here again. What are you trying to do this time? And, and not antagonism. Bring it to the fire. You know, people think that there's darkness in them. There's just darkness. And then there's people like us that have the wit and the sense to bring the darkness up into the light because it's not just us that needs to jettison forward into an arc of consciousness. 
the darkness inside of us is the thing that's holding us back. And the height that you are able to climb is always tied to the low places you're given to stand within yourself, which is why the tree is this universal symbol of, um, of spiritual actualization. You know, somebody once said to me, the, the spirit is the thing that climbs and branches up towards the sky and the light, the infinite light. The soul is the thing that needs to anchor down into the grit and the muck and the dirt and the, and the, the unlovely parts of our psyches and our histories from, from behind. And that full integration is what causes the stability for us to be able to climb up, not the denial or the utter cutting away. Yeah. The hardest thing it is in the world for someone to do is just be themselves. Yeah. And the irony is authenticity when practiced wholeheartedly is effortless. But to get yeah. there, <laughs> but, but to get there is 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 such a you kind of have to like not give a fuck. You kind of have to like 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 really not care, and then care more about like, but who who are you without the filters of whatever you are, you know? So exactly, and then go from there, and you don't need to be perfect <laughs> at it, and and you just you know, but the path you become the path. The more you walk along that path, that's exactly right. Antonio Machado said, um, "Waymaker, there is no way you make the way by walking." Yeah. 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 Sarah, tell us about some of your spoken word. I know you've been very generous with your time. I'm going to see how long I can keep you going for before you have to attend to another um, engagement, but I'll keep you on if, you, if you're happy to stay. Well, I do have a client in an hour, but I will say about my spoken word that that's my other baby. That's another passion <laughs> project of mine. Um, I'm so happy that I'm able now, I see a way before I couldn't see a way to have my be a spiritual teacher and also a spoken word performing artist at mm -hmm. the same time. And that just wasn't a reality that I was able to bring together. And now I, I see that and, and I very much want that. I want to bring that with me. I would even like to go on tour. That's actually my goal when it comes to my spoken word. And so I truly love it. I haven't been able to write since I started my channel, but mm -hmm. that's fine. Um, I do have a manuscript at least a few poems to go to my my third poetry book. I, I have the title though, High Level Role Play. Because isn't this play. all just really high exactly level role right. play? Exactly <laughs> right. Somebody once said this is just World of, of Warcraft and all we're doing is grinding XP. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is like really high level. And so um I, I enjoy it. I uh, that's that's the will you share you know, some of your spoken word with us? What's Absolutely. The, what's the piece that you you feel um, grabs at the smalls of the human psyche with the most delight? Well, rather than that beautiful and intense <laughs> proposition, I'll perhaps <coughs> recite the one that I best remember. So that way, <laughs> it comes off <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. You, 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 this is the kind of podcast where we can pause with some, and you can Google or you can find your favorite piece, but. Um, oh, I could go. I could go grab. A, yeah, book. we can do that. Yeah, we have the technology. <laughs> I'm in charge. This is that kind of podcast, Sarah. We can do whatever oh, we want. That. But I am also going to ask you um, where, which piece that my favorite quote of yours comes from. Love will save them, and love will not be gentle. That comes from unconditional love. All right. Well, you you still choose the one that you feel um, the most excited about. Man, so many. I mean, I'm just light up with joy when it comes to this, but I shall go with. It's lovely expressing yourself in a manner of your choosing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I really it. do. This. 
Okay, I'm just going to go with the only language just because I feel like that's provocative and provoking. Sure, so we're back and Sarah's gone and fetched her, her, her crib notes. What are you going to share with us, Sarah? One of my strongest suits and performance pieces from my book, my first book of poetry, How to Set Yourself on Fire. This one is called The Only Language. <clears throat> she said, you don't want answers. You're just looking for a reason to need them. And that right there pulled me out of my trance and replaced my awe with something like, huh? I forget. People don't know what they're talking about. They have to speak in third person because they don't know themselves very well. How do you tell someone there's more to life than taking off your clothes, like putting them back on? You don't. So I roll over to take a sip of my tea and speak to her in the only language she understands. Baby, you are free to be as hopeless as you like. You could be air. And I'm free to be the sea. Because I learned somewhere along the way, the point wasn't to save the world. The point was to save yourself. But you end up saving the world anyways, because that's just the way it works. So I let her be lost. I let her be cold and indifferent because I knew that you could only be lost, cold and indifferent for so long until you start to seek heat. Once she was so turned around, she couldn't tell up from down. So free, she couldn't tell the ivy from the trees. Once the frost got deep inside and numbed her bones into a lullaby, she would start to care too much, far too much. And she would start to itch looking for a light until her skin was raw from itching and started twitching and her body and soul would rattle and roll like two stones throwing blows striking against each other until she sparked and she would be left with no other choice but to set herself on fire and light her own way that's epic that's epic <clears throat> and there's a bit of like a, a Maya Angelou piss and vinegar coming through I love it <laughs> yeah. 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 That's about being with someone who's hot, but not hot enough. <laughs> in, 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 in more than one way. <clears throat> Correct. Yes. What, what was the opening line again? She said, you don't want answers. You're just looking for a reason to need them. Because sometimes people think they're clever when they don't go as deep as you. So they think they have your number and they think they could just figure you out in some sort of pseudo philosophical way. Been there. Yeah. That's 99.9% .9 of all my relationships. Yeah. And so I, I think it's cute. And so then I would speak to that and the only language a person like that would understand rather than try to speak at my par. And the language that they understand is... You're free to be as hopeless as the sea. Or no, as hopeless as you'd like, you could be air. Because it's yeah. like in that moment, and I think so much more of air, I mean, no disrespect to air, but I was pulling from that <coughs> at the moment to just kind of be like, well, there's nothing substantial about you, just like air. So you can be air while I'm the sea. A lot of deep stuff in there. <clears throat> so how do you usually relate to your spoken word work? Um, as you've published a book. You've published several books. <laughs> what does the publishing process look like? How much energy ratio was spent on the um, getting a publisher to just do what you wanted them to do versus actual creation of the work? 
I didn't get a publisher for the first one, how to set yourself on fire. I wrote that on fire. Essentially. Um, I wrote it. I wrote it. uh, I took a lot of what was already compiled in my journeys or journals and from my journeys, from my ceremonies, that's what gave me the goal. That's what provoked me. Um, this was just a dirty little secret of mine. I had always done since middle school to kind of, you know, as as a therapy and whatnot. So, um, wasn't until ceremony that I was even giving myself permission to have this. And it's like, this is, this is not a dirty little secret. This is a gift and you're treating it so much differently. And so rather than try to, I, I think actually, I think I did look for publishers at that time and it just didn't work out and I didn't want to stop that. So I just self-published it. The second book I came out with last year, Ceremony. That one I could have gone to publishers with. And for the third one, I'm open now to publishing through a publisher. But for the second one, I was too used to how I how easy it was to have things my way and to not be contingent. And so I went the self-publishing route again. I've got so, to ask you how to do that, Sarah, um, because now you're a veteran of a walking a path that I intend to do in the next couple of months. So I'm going to need oh, some. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah I, I'd like to not have that journey be any more difficult than it already needs to be. Um, and if, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I do it through Amazon. Amazon does have a lot of ease to that process, but there are some pointers I could give you. For instance, I made just a minor error and I had, to, I, I had white paper, the, the ink didn't come out so good on the white paper. So I moved it to cream. It came out great, but then I had to start over the reviews, everything. And now there's two books on it. Like they just didn't know how to handle if you changed the color of the paper And so you had to start the whole process over again. So don't do that. Commit to either cream or white. (laughs) That's my best advice. All right, folks, you heard it here first. The uh, spiritual ambassador of Source has just told you right here. One big takeaway for all of you today is choose cream or white and don't dither along the way. That's it. That's my message to humanity. That needs to get out. (laughs) You're going to censor me. Everyone needs to know. Is there another piece? that you'd like to share that is is poignant for the moment. Yeah, actually I would. So if you want to get in a little bit into my head about what, you know, uh, illusions of grandeur, what my role is, I shall recite ceremony, which is the title poem of my second book, Ceremony. The hardest part, I don't remember. The easiest thing to let go. I move through time, a sweet surrender, a sense of the soul. I feel the weight of her creations absolved from my heart. Adorning reprieve, granting me discharge. As the weight of her will pulls me into her gravity, this is all the ceremony I need to become her. She gave me life, I rectify. I am her knife, her breath, both hands, coarse iron, cryptic kyanite. Between the crossfires of chance and circumstance, there are no innocent. Every wrong is brought to meet its maker because God sends me to do her dirty work. So when she sends her crows, I listen. On instinct, I release all motion to linger in her atmosphere. I would envy her if I wasn't so busy admiring her. She welds me like a chess piece. I am whatever she asks of me. Like an ancient oath never to expire, a soothing war cry, a twisted lullaby to punctuate the finality of my fate ad infinitum. And that's an autobiographical account of an experience you went through in ceremony. Yeah. Almost like the void created me as the rectifier. Go rectify. 
I strongly resonate with that because I believe if you are doing ceremony correctly, you are two seemingly paradoxical things are happening. There is an utter surrender, but the thing that you surrender to is your pure authenticity, your, your purpose, yourself, the thing that you actually came here programmed or inclined to do. And you can do no wrong when you're acting from a place of utter authenticity because you are the universe's expression of itself. I wish I could carry you around everywhere so that when I say something, you can back it up with that type of substance and articulation. <clears throat> so, uh, in fact, <clears throat> here's a suggestion. In a way, you can, because what I recommend is a collaboration in a time frame that suits us both, where you say your piece and I say my piece, and they will sit in the in the mind like a, a pair of hands resting and <clears throat> it's, we sometimes need two hands to grasp something with and the first problem is our hand is grasping at all which is the way the hand of our mind preemptively tries to determine what the nature of what it's trying to grasp is and it preforms itself and thereby just like a child that can't quite have depth perception you, you actually can't pick the thing up. And in the beginning, to pick up a concept, you need two hands. You need, especially if they're open, to receive. You, you kind of need to come at it from the language that you use and then this bow that I seem to be able to put on things sometimes and vice versa. Because <clears throat> I've actually sent your work to people that I'm speaking about and I'm just, I've, I've said everything I'm going to say and they're still looking at me like this. And I send them one of your videos and they go, oh, Jesus, okay. And they said to me, if they had watched just your video first, it also wouldn't make sense. I mean, they literally needed those two pairings to come together. And Well, that's what I needed in order to learn. I needed to learn some a concept one way and then a second way from maybe, you know, different language and then a third. And then I can understand it, not regurgitate it, but truly understand it. Yeah, the Kabbalists refer to this as the two pillars of the temple, the left abducts and the right, um, uh, what's the word, the left? The, the left detracts and the right abducts. They literally need the opposition of the two snakes to be able to achieve the, the upward momentum. <clears throat> that, that piece of yours is called ceremony. Mm -hmm. This is a, do, do you mind if I read something to you? Please. <clears throat> okay, this is a piece I called the, the unseen father and it's about an experience similarly that um, I encountered personally in in ceremony the unseen father if the earth is the bosom of the mother whose shelter and fulsome grace are withheld from none then the boundless sky is the great wheel of the father under whose iron laws even the mighty sun and all the stars are ordered and between them, a place for every life to come to a surrender, to either the steady heartbeat and tides of the mother, against whose gentle breast all are held as babes, a cradle for the innocent and a manger for the weary in their final rest, or of the great music and oneness of the maker, the ocean in whom the infinite heaving of all tides are held and measured, the endless heart of which into whom all rivers with a peaceful sigh of yielding 
to the great longing of returning home, branch and spill at last again, as once in their first source, into the utter surrender of their last great release. But there is a love which I alone have seen beyond these two, which endures alone and unnoticed, a sturdy back to the dark and empty chaos, to the oblivion of the yawning void, to the devouring more of a lightless eternity of nothing. And he, the will, for whom there is no bosom, no ocean, no wheel, no track, I want to sit at times while I may, while my will halts beside him. And you wrote that in ceremony or after? Just after. That was beautiful. Um, how 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 accurate on top of poetic yes. is what I yes. is what I like most. That's my wheelhouse, and I have poetry which is beautiful. And everyone goes, "Oh, that's lovely," and it takes someone like you to come along and go, "Oh, brother knows what he's talking about." Yeah. Yes. Yes, I have a lot of stuff like that. Um, it's given me great pleasure to write it, but the, the final pleasure is being denied me because there's no one that can understand it. And even the stuff that I write, it takes me sometimes a while to read it back a year later and go, oh, wow, oh, wow, because you just don't realise. You don't realise what you were writing at the time. <clears throat> but you must because look at the American, I mean, even over-American, but look at the, the great American writers. They... No, I don't believe any of the greatest writers were like, how will people like this? They were so immersed in what they were writing. And then later on in another era when yeah. they, when, you know, they were appreciated. The, the poignancy really comes home, really comes home later. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> I thought that was a nice companion piece to. Um, thank you for sharing that. <clears throat> Yeah, well, thank you for sharing yours because yours is very much like make me an active instrument of the mother and then mine was make me a very, very passive instrument of the father. Just sit, yeah. here, just sit here and don't bend. I actually, I loved that. Um, I loved that equality or that symmetry. I noticed yeah. that right away and I was yeah. like, this is too funny that he has literally a counterpart piece. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy, huh? Um, it's, it's one of the things that we've lost. Um our, our love of the mother has become very naive and our love of the father is totally naive. I mean, our paradigm for love of the father is being largely Christianity, which is really, if we're honest with ourselves, a weak man's idea of a strong man. Um, mm -hmm. And so yeah. it's, it's inevitable that we're going to get toxic masculinity when the very figurehead of your ideology is petulant, demanding, jealous. Um, how did we think this was going to go? You know, um, and then the only way you can possibly venerate the mother is if you wear tie-dye T-shirts and you have dreadlocks and you don't shower for for three weeks. I, th I think these these are these are these gateways to reacquainting ourselves with the love of the mother and the love of the father. I think they're they're naive, and we're part of the discomfort we're about to endure collectively, and really are enduring is designed to shake us out of our apathy. I would be totally fine with the tie-dye if they didn't have if there wasn't so much dissonance. I've heard from some of my clients recently that and I won't get too deep into it, but that 
there's a lot of mainstream delusion that the just be consistent is all my that's my new message What's on top of cream and the white paper it's just be consistent if you're going to be tie-dye <laughs> then be tie-dye like don't have the dissonance that goes okay <laughs> let's take on the official mainstream narrative of whatever's going on while we're counterculture like just commit just be congruent yeah shit will get off the pot yes i i I find the tide I end to be reductive of, of the two dichotomies or the, of the dichotomy you gave. I find that the tide I has more responsibility to be congruent. <laughs> so I, I'm hard you're on, harder the on your, you're harder on your team. I'm harder on the tide. I, they need to be, they need yeah. to he, consolidate their dissonance. Yeah. And by dissonance, just help people catch up what we're talking about here. <clears throat> so they're, they're, they're claiming to be uh, non-doctrinal and yet completely subsumed by their own dogma. You cannot be the epitome of counterculture while you are implementing the official narrative of whatever, the official culture of whatever. Like that is the whole point of mm. that. Mm. It's just dissonance, really. Yeah, I, I try to explain to people. Many, mm-hmm. I try to explain to people that um, conspiracy theorists and um, un- I would say unbalanced social justice advocates. They have almost everything in common except the support of the crowd. So they both argue from a place of ignorance. They both conflate happily. They both selectively cherry pick truth, news, reality, just to keep upholding their narrative. There is another they which they're castigating and demonizing and who they are robbing of their voice. I mean, I I can sit and read this list of pro and against, and you start finding it hard to realize whether I'm talking about the woke cancel culture, whether I'm talking about the angry right, because suddenly if you just describe the behavior, it's all the same behavior with all the same attendant um, symptoms, and then people go, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, and then at some point in time you can see their face change because they, so sorry, am, am I agreeing with you and insulting my team here? And the, and the fact that you can't discern between the two tells you everything you need to know. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, so I want to keep talking, but it's it's getting late, Sarah. But I mean, wow, this was such a great talk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I I expected that. I only expected the best from you, but I got even better, and I got to recite some of my poetry. So this had <laughs> five star review for you. Hey, I a lot of my work. Um, is so pivotal or central to poetry. And and, and there's a reason for that, actually. And I'll just share that with you quickly. It's that I believe that poetry really is the only way we can get at the deeper parts of our psyche with the crude liturgy of language. Because I really believe that poetry is like the the journalism of the human condition. It's this, we've got these little illuminators in the old-fashioned manuscript sense, these gentle editors of our inner gospels, and they look out into the world, it's, it's all the non-literal, but to make it and to realize it and bring it down into this world, you need metaphor, you need hook, you need connection. And to me, poetry, all it really is, is speaking in the art of the effable, articulating it in, 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 in relatable terms through metaphor. And if we're honest with ourselves, the only way we rarely learn ever is through metaphor. Yes. 
because we yeah. don't have it's as above so below we don't have direct knowledge yeah right we have to get there and so poetry is uh, i think there's two prerequisites for being a human and that's sentience and poetry so i tell everyone who at least comes up to me and i can sense wants some sort of permission from me because that's what we are also maybe not all the time but we're permission slips for each other to you know 100%. be ourselves yeah. And so um, I tell everyone who comes to me regarding my poetry that like everyone can write poetry. It's not like everyone can do everything, but everyone it's a, you know, if you're human, you have that ability to write down and convey yourself in a way that you can possibly perceive as beautiful or inspiring or provoking. Mm-hmm. I wrote um, once our poets are not meant only to delight us. We have perhaps forgotten that. But theirs is the charge to stir our cups deeply and disruptively at times, to spill a little even over the lip, to leave the cold spoon sat there, stirred itself by the inertia of emotions, welcomed and unwelcomed. How we discover we're not added like honey or a bitterness, but were there all along, lying never quite inert at the bottom. For how else might we come to know the full depth of our own cups? Did you write that? I wrote that. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. So you wrote even explaining poetry. Yeah, I love that because um, <laughs> so I followed the emetic tradition in my own way, and my work has all been about um, nous, um, the this principle of divine understanding. That's that's my the core modality is just chase understanding, and and like I encapsulated that with a little quote that's and it was again written right in the heart of ceremony one night. I said. We tried love, we tried wisdom, now let's try understanding. And love, of course, was Christianity and wisdom was, of course, Buddhism. Those were the two big stories that we we tried. And they were okay for a time, but they've got their problems. And now I think it's the turn of understanding. And understanding really is the highest wisdom and the highest love. Yeah. If you don't understand, you can't have wisdom or love. That's it. That's it. Exactly right. And so I write about everything that I look at and I write it in a poetic way because it lands better for me. It lands in the ears better. It lands in the heart better. It stays better. It lands with other people better. It's easier for recall. There's just no, no doubt. It's like the geometry of, of, um, of understanding manifested to, you know, geometry is always, how do I, sorry, how do I get the relationship of that angle down here in this paradigm over here? And it has to be inverted through something. And the only thing it can be inverted through without a distortion is poetry. All right, sister. That was intense. It was awesome. That was a ride. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for your time. I know that your project is is hugely important. And I know that you virtually spend the whole week basically um, articulate or, or organizing your time around um, keeping content coming and 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 keeping the um, the stream steady. Your your work is hugely, hugely influential to me and you're one of the three people alive on the planet today who I pay attention to real attention oh it's a huge honor thank you yeah um your videos are a must watch for anybody who wants to understand what's actually happening if they are confused about a, a whole raft of spiritual terms what the coincidence of those spiritual terms are with just pragmatic ideas we can get our heads around and we can actually start participating in meaningfully your videos are basically like short TED talks for awakening. Um, yeah. I like so, 
yeah, with that. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to please share with the listeners where they can most easily get hold of you? And which which link do you want to direct them to if some people would want energy work done with you? So you can reach me at my website for energy healing at alchemicalenergyhealing.com. You can find all of my attention at the moment is currently at my YouTube channel, The Alchemist, or you could type in my full name. Um, and then my main hub is on Instagram at the.alchemist. You could find me there with my cool graphics and and fun. <laughs> They're pretty cool graphics. They're pretty cool graphics. And I'm just it's saying, Shirley, hypothetically, if, if, for example, you were to take edibles, anyone in the free states of America, and watch Sarah's uh, videos on YouTube, I'm just saying, theoretically and hypothetically, there might be a little bit more depth to the, the intros and the artwork and the music than meets the eye. And I'm saying. I totally think about that. I, I've actually told a good friend of mine. I'm like, you know what? Someone somewhere is like tripping and then they go on their phone and then they see my stuff. And I'm like, whoa. Or, or theoretically speaking, again, hypothetically, somebody is putting it up on a 55-inch television with with surround sound. And that this is I'm just this is pure conjectural speculation. Okay. So oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, during said experience, yes. Mm, mm, mm. Oh man, okay. I yeah. I, so what you I need feel to consider unfinished business that I didn't even know that I had. Right, right. So this is what I what I actually wanted to sneak in with you is one of my dreams <clears throat> is actually to be a visual um, experience artist and immersive experience artist. So imagine <clears throat> a theater with now this could version 10 of it would be even the theater and the curtains and everything were all sourced sustainably and built ethically and consecrated and all the rest of it. But just take any theater for now. All of the people that we hire as ushers are all sensitive and aware of the modality and the experience. Then everybody commits with full consent to giving the audience the best possible, most authentic experience. So everybody gets out of their own way. Then a bunch of artists and musicians conspire to have digital and live music and performing movement art and a spectacle of tasteful color while under the graceful sway of a psychedelic. Just enough and the entire evening curated with the verbal suggestions, the combination of imagery and archetypes all deliberately infused give people a two to three hour experience with people on hand to attend them if they're not if they're not feeling the vibe or to usher them out. And there's rules of engagement. People can have a small patch that they show to show that they're open for engagement or communication or that they would prefer just to be left alone and unattended. And everybody who comes to the venue is aware of that convention and respectful of that convention. And part of it is a sit down on a beanbag, watch the experience. Part of it is lie back with your eye covers closed. Part of it is getting up and walking around and interacting with some of the, the immersive experience. And the whole thing takes about three or four hours. You've thought about this as in-depthly as I thought about rain indoor soccer. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to tell me about that one day. But can you imagine that experience and the transformative power and the immersive power something like that could have? 
That's the form that our worship should take. Well, that's the new paradigm because we have a lot of misconceptions about what a new paradigm is. But what I keep telling people is, is that it's community now. What have we all been? We've been in the time of knowing data and, you know, taken information, all of that. Now what? The next is human contact. Now it's art. Art and community is the new paradigm. Mm. Now imagine doing that with merging the knowledge that you have around the mechanics of the human experience and the cosmos, along with this kind of poetry, along with the same sensibility applied in 15 or so directions. Now you take a modicum of that and you start letting that sit in the back of your consciousness like a teabag that's slowly infusing your thoughts and your actions and your activities anyway so that your future videos bring a little bit more of that in. Absolutely. I mean, I've been with, uh, I perform spoken art, you know, in many different venues, but one of them, this, this reminds me of, it was deeply healing, not for me, but I could tell for the performance artists who came on after me because she was naked with a bunch of rope around her. And then she was, someone was pulling from the audience, people to her to go cut some of her ties or uh, you could just tell it was very deeply healing for her. And, and for whoever was watching who felt oppressed and, you know, repressed as well. And I looked at that and I went like, this is performance art is so healing. It's so healing. And, and then you take that and, you know, maybe not a naked woman who's bound is your vibe. Let's say it's more of a psychedelic community or what it- To me, the whole smorgasbord needs to happen because the, <laughs> the, um, the, the inner pantheon of, of human experience and demonology that we're trying to, you know, elevate and kill in turn is it's all of it. Yeah. It's all of it. We all have a catharsis around release. We all have just a man. I just want to switch off and be in awe of the universe. I, I want that. Of course I want that. I want that prize to be there. Exactly right. But it's not A or yeah. B. It's, it's all of it. And if you empower the artists, they'll just, you don't need to tell them what to do. <laughs> art anyway my friend that's um that was awesome and i think that's a that's a very powerful wrap um <clears throat> is there any any message in closing a book that's coming out anything you'd like to plug my youtube channel check out the alchemist sarah l coldy and i come out with videos every tuesday at 9 a.m pst pacific standard time and that is my greatest love's labor at the moment as I search for time to write poems for my high-level role-play manuscript. And work is love made visible. <clears throat> um, those videos are about 10 minutes long, right? Yeah, I, I timed the script so that it's bite-sized, <clears throat> um, so that it's digestible. So it's usually around 10 minutes. Um, and also, you know, that 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 does serve a purpose. I can pace myself, but mainly it's for the the audience to be able to digest what's being mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. To be effective, the medicine has to be digestible. So I find that both extremely effective and digestible medicine. Look for The Alchemist on YouTube. <clears throat> As Sarah said, the videos are no more than 10 minutes long. And um, I haven't come across one in your series yet that wasn't worth watching. Not oh, thank one. you. I deeply yeah. appreciate it. No, thank that. you. I think the work that you do is... Um, extremely valuable and if people can be a little bit more open-minded especially about paradigms like energy healing and quantum consciousness that they perhaps wouldn't have become familiar with before first sit down um, 
Sarah's uh, consulting prices, at least for now, are, I would find extremely reasonable. And um, uh, just a 15-minute conversation one-on-one with Sarah will disavow you of any concern that you might have that this is anything but absolutely authentic and effective. So, Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it, Sarah. This is one of the most uh, um, the conversations that I've looked for, most forward to having. <clears throat> and I don't think people realize, or many people are going to realize, what what we the level of what we've discussed here. But I'm going to put a very long preamble on the front, and I'll send you the audio as uh, as soon as it's available. Awesome. What a fascinating discussion, um, and I'm definitely looking forward to a round two. And I'm going to be speaking with Sarah more on and off the podcast. If you'd like to make contact with Sarah's work, you, there's many on-ramp points here, um, directly understanding what uh, Sarah does in relation to the energy work we, she was talking about. Go to alchemicalhealing.com, the YouTube channel where Sarah releases these excellent uh, videos, is called The Alchemist, and you can spot her immediately her name is Sarah Alcoli, E-L-K-H-A-L-D-Y. And of course, as mentioned on Instagram, at the dot alchemist. And uh, Sarah's work's quite distinguishable from anybody else's. She's got a pretty significant following and for good reason. And um, I, <clears throat> I don't value many people's work at the level that I value Sarah's, so... I strongly recommend um, taking the time to understand it and to start becoming familiar with um, the language set and, and concepts that Sarah is sharing because they're becoming ever more poignant at the moment. As always, if there's anything more you want to know, please send an email to info at eyeswideopenlife.org. If you're valuing this podcast and these episodes, this is made possible purely off the back of my own energy and time. <clears throat> and it's a public service which I'm doing to make people more enlightened and help them think more critically and pick away along their own awakening instead of floundering amongst that uh, that ocean swirl of spiritual junk and trash that I did mention before. If that's the case, help me to help you go and take some time and leave a review on your podcast app of choice or even write an email to me. It'll take you a few minutes. Let me know what your thoughts are, your feedback, your questions and uh, take time to share the podcast and um, the posts on Instagram with people who you think will find it interesting. That's all from me for this episode and um, thank you for listening and thank you for being part of this conversation. 